I was honored that Deborah and Kent agreed to an Orange Socks interview. While I have known them for many years and cherish them as friends, I did not know the details of the incident that resulted in their daughter Heather's traumatic brain injury. Their story is hard because they experienced firsthand a parental nightmare, the drowning of a child. Deborah and Kent recognize many miracles that occurred that eventful day and believe there was divine intervention that led a stranger to help save their daughter and many blessings of healing that occurred thereafter. On September 8th in 1984, I was upstairs working on some work and Kent was downstairs watching some TV and taking a break from yard work. And our oldest daughter was four years old and she came running into the house and said to Kent, we're never gonna see Heather again. Heather was two, almost two at the time. And we had a three-year-old son, Jeff, in between. Kent, of course, shouted, what, what are you talking about? And I heard Kent yell. So I came running downstairs because I could tell there was panic in, the, in his voice. And Natalie, our four-year-old said, well, Heather got, fell into a ditch and she got sucked into a culvert. So we, of course, ran to where it was and, and we were surprised that at four years old, she knew exactly where it had happened and she showed us the spot. They apparently were walking down the street toward the 7-Eleven, unbeknownst to us. We, they weren't supposed to leave the yard, but they were following some neighbor children. And Heather had gotten fascinated by the water that was running in a ditch alongside of the road and she went over to explore it. Natalie, of course, didn't realize the danger. And the next thing we know, she's falling in and she got sucked into the culvert and disappeared. So we have obviously panicked and we looked up and down the culvert. The culvert was under a driveway. So after that, it opened up for a space and then it went under the street. So there was a long, obviously a long piece under the street. So then we looked at the other end after the street to see where the water, you know, if there was anything we could see in the water after that. We couldn't find her anywhere. We weren't calm, so I think neighbors kind of heard us panicking and started coming out, and the house in front of where she fell in, they came out, and somebody called the police. Again, we were just panicking, looking all over for her, for wherever she could be. At some point, the police arrived, and they made me go behind a bush so that I was not allowed to watch what was going on. So you'll probably have to explain what happened while I was behind the bush, because they apparently thought I was hysterical, which I, would, I didn't think I was hysterical. I, of course, I was upset, but I wasn't out of my mind. Well, and just to clarify, when Natalie first informed us that she had fallen in the water, I had gotten into the canal, and the water was up to my chest, and I had felt all around throughout the canal for the full length of this home. I couldn't find her, obviously. And so I had run back home on a couple of occasions to get two-by-fours and umbrellas and whatever I could find in the garage to try to see if I could poke around and inside the culvert to see if I could even establish that she was there. So I was in the water uh, doing that uh, when the paramedics and the police came. And at that point, they really didn't have a solution. You know, there's a, another story that goes with this. Are we gonna talk about that? Well, maybe just in the sense that he was there. Yeah, I, I mean, there, there's a really cool story that goes along with it, but to, to us, to, uh, not follow that part of it exactly, but uh, at some point, another gentleman got in the water with me in addition to the, the rescue people. And he came up to the culvert, and the culvert was not large enough for my shoulders to fit in. So all you could do as, as an adult was to reach in as far as you could without any other tools or equipment. And he got up there and uh, he 
saw the situation and he had a son with him who was about a 10 year old and he called his son to come down into the water as well. And we all got up there and he was asking me, you know, what I knew and I said, I, I'm not sure, but I think my daughter is caught in that culvert somewhere. And, uh, and obviously I can't get to it and I can't stop the water. Well, he had another son with him, a, an older son, and they had found some two by fours and some old carpets off some equipment in a field down the way. And they had used that equipment, that carpet and that, to block the water about a half a block further down and then diverted it down another channel. And that allowed the water to fall, the depth of it. And as the water fell, I looked in and I could see Heather's legs. At that point, I kind of fell apart. I had been hoping beyond hope that she, that Natalie was wrong, that she'd never really fallen in the water, that she had just wandered off somewhere and we were gonna find her. But now I saw her and at that point, you know, the devastation hit. And the, the gentleman at that point asked me to kind of move aside from the culvert entrance and uh, he tried to reach in and, and could not reach Heather. And then he called his son in and said to his son, you've got to go in. You've got to go in and pull her out. And again, the water was high. We could see, but it was still high enough that his head would have to go under the water to get in there. And there was a lot of debris, broken glass, sharp rocks, etc., that was in this canal and in this culvert. And so it was a scary situation. I remember hearing the son at first say, Dad, I can't do it. I can't do that. And then the dad turned to him and said, if you don't do this, she will die. But if you do, you can save a life. And it changed the boy's approach, obviously. He accepted that. And he made his way into the culvert with his head underwater as far as he could. But he got in ways and he, he panicked and he came back out coughing and said, I can't do it, Dad. And the dad said, yes, you can. And so I held one of his legs and his dad held the other. He took a deep breath. He went in, submerged. And, and then got his head up above it inside the culvert and then reached and we could hear him say, I've got her, I've got her. And so we pulled him back out of the culvert and he had been able to grab her by her hair and pulled her out of that culvert. She was obviously dead. She was blue, no movement, no activity at all. The paramedics were right there, took her out of our hands and took her up on the, the side of the road and began to administer CPR. And I remember hearing at that point, you know, that, hey, we're getting no response, no response. How long did you figure she was underwater? I knew it was at least 20 minutes because when I ran out of the house the first time with Natalie, I noticed the time. And when I, I went back again a couple of times to get the two by fours and the umbrellas and searched and, you know, and so forth. And so it, it, it was probably longer, but it was at least 20 minutes. Okay. So Deborah, what was the result? So they revived her at they, some they, point. Yes, they were finally able to revive her at the scene. They threw her in an ambulance and Kent went with them, had a treacherous ride to the hospital. They had officers leapfrogging into intersections so that they wouldn't have to slow down. Once they got her, they took her to Pioneer Valley Hospital. They stabilized her there. She was probably there a couple hours while they tried to get her stabilized. And then they life-flighted her to the Children's Hospital. She was put 
into the ICU, I guess, for children. We were put into what we found out later was called the grieving room, which is where they put families that their child was going to die. We didn't know it at the time. Heather was drugged so that she wouldn't fight the ventilator that they had to put her on to help her breathe. And so we just went into the other room and just waited. We, we talked to doctors and we talked to nurses and family members came to visit us in the room. We kind of tried to sleep a little bit and a nurse came in in the middle of the night and said, you need to come and see this. So we went in to see Heather and she had woken up that the drugs had worn, worn off and she was kind of fidgeting and moving her eyes opened. And so of course we talked to her for a minute and they said, we, we have to drug her again so that her lungs can heal. But that was the first sign that we thought, oh, there's a chance, she's here. She was in the intensive care for two weeks and it was a roller coaster. One minute she was doing okay and the next minute her blood levels, her blood oxygen levels had dropped and she was not gonna make it. And they threatened surgery two or three times to, to do things that they felt what they'd have to do. And we gave her a blessing and I'll be darned if she, the next time when they'd approach to start surgery, she never had one surgery. They never had to do one surgery. After two weeks, they put her onto the main, the, you know, the main floor of the hospital, and she was there another six or seven weeks. We were told she was cortically blind. She had no reflexes. She was being fed through an NG tube. Her eyes could see, but the brain wouldn't register it. So she, and she was doing a, a low moaning and stretching like a board, stiff as a board. So I would go up there every day and just try to. We'd give her sedatives, and I would try to go up there and keep her from her muscles from atrophying into this stiff position. And um, we had therapy there that were trying to work with her and every four hours we were begging for these sedatives so that she could be more relaxed and not so agitated. She would do this horrible moaning sound and it was very traumatic. We stayed while she was in intensive care. Kent and I stayed overnight but we could tell the other two children at home were getting very upset and worried and it was very hard and traumatic for them. So it turned out that after a couple of weeks Kent tried to go to work and we would both go home at night and be with the kids and then I would go to the hospital during the day and we had neighbors that would watch the kids and help us with our children, uh, other children, while I would go and be with Heather in the hospital. And, and just a quick comment there, that back to the surgeries that were thought to be needed. There were two things happening. One was they constantly had to take blood because they were trying to measure, you know, what the level of oxygen was in the blood to give an idea of, you know, how much was, was being received into the body. And if they, if they give too much oxygen, it kills the lungs. If they don't give enough oxygen, then the brain dies. And so they were walking this tightrope. Literally every 20 minutes, they would take a measurement. And so Heather was literally a pincushion. She had been drained of blood so many times, it was just a, an, an awful situation. And then as Deborah said, the other, the other side of this was there, there wasn't a lot of response. There wasn't any movement of any significant kind. And so, and, and the doctors had no idea what, this, what the uh, level of brain damage was. The reason that they thought there might need to be surgeries was they would take x-rays of her body and it would show, at least initially, it showed there was fluids outside of the organs. And so they felt that when she was in the culvert, perhaps she had been pushed up against rocks or other debris and, and she had internal bleeding going on. And they had concluded that she did. And that's why the surgeries were needed. But as Deborah mentioned, after some blessings were given, they retook those uh, x-rays and concluded there was none, that no surgeries were needed. So we were in a situation at this point where the doctors had no idea of her capabilities. 
but it looked like from a physical perspective in, in that organ and, and stomach and body area that she was okay. There wasn't any significant damage there. So then we got down to the end of this Well, one other period. thing, we, one thing that we did know is that occasionally she would hear. She would stop and just listen. And, and one of those occasions is when we brought the two children up to her, and this was in the intensive care unit, and they came to talk to her, and then they sang Eensy Weensy Spider, which was a, a song she was just learning in nursery. And she just stopped and you could tell that she she knew they were there and that she understood what was going on. So we knew nothing else seemed to be working, but it seemed that her hearing was working. So I obviously when I was up there with her, I would talk to her all the time, trying to calm her down and trying to let her know I was there. So we got to the day when they were going to release her and they told us, you need to send her to an institution. She's way too much work for you to take her home. Kent and I both felt, you know, this is a little, she turned two in the hospital. Her second birthday was while we were there. And Kent and I both just felt this was a little baby and we weren't about to send her to an institution without at least trying to take care of her ourselves. And the insurance company was kind of crazy. They told us if this, she went straight from the hospital into a facility, they would fund it. But if we took her home and it didn't work out and we wanted to put her in a facility, they would not fund that. They would not pay for that. So. I guess people thought, you know, the hospital staff were thinking that we would definitely do this facility, and it never even occurred to me to do that. There, there, there was not even one second that I thought, yeah, I'm gonna do this. This was my little baby, and I was gonna take her home and take care of her whatever way I could, so. And, and the doctor's prognosis, because we asked multiple times, you know, so what can we expect here? And and I think in his effort to level with us, he, he, he used the term, what you see is what you get. So his prognosis was, the likelihood of any improvement, so her ability to ever see again, to talk, to move her extremities in any way, that wasn't going to happen. It, it was going to be, you know, I, I hate that term they use, but you know, that term of vegetable was what he described, and that's what we would have. And that's why he encouraged us as well as others to put her into this institution. So you didn't. You took her home. Let's, let's fast forward just a, just a little. And when did you find out the extent of her disabilities? Because had, you had a prognosis that was very bleak. The reality was that it wasn't quite like that, correct? So what? We were, yeah, we were, we were very fortunate. I, I think I figured that I would be home with her for a year and everything would be fine. Because once we got her home, she knew she was home. She calmed down. She was off her sedatives in about six weeks. Her reflexes started coming back. I was able to kind of start dropping liquid into her mouth. And uh, so she could, she st started showing physically that she was starting to, to progress. So I thought, and just to clarify, she when we brought her home, she couldn't swallow. That's why the tube was necessary. So she had no ability to swallow and then... She couldn't blink. She had no reflexes. Anyway, they just gradually started happening. So, But after about a year into it, I realized this, this is probably pretty permanent. You know, we're, we're going to have some issues here for a long longer time than I had hoped. And it kind of hit me hard. After about a year, I thought, wow, this is this is going to be a new life than I had anticipated, and things are going to be very different than I had anticipated. We had another very fortunate thing. Kent's insurance company had no limit on therapy. We could go to the PTOT and speech therapist as much as we wanted to. So I took her five and six times a week to therapy so that we could take advantage of that. And we were grandfathered in after they changed that policy, <laughs> I'm sure because of us. Because <laughs> um, I think your company was self-insured, wasn't it? So. Well, it was it was a large company. Yeah, I don't it was think very it was very international of us, company. But. but anyway, so we 
we took advantage of that. So she did have some good progress. Well, she had, she had made, you know, even the first day, there was progress. It was amazing to get her back into her home with her family around her, away from the, the tubes and all of the, you know, the equipment in the hospital. She began to, you know, to do some really cool things. You know, not, not in most people's minds, but in our minds, it was impressive. And, and as Deborah said, we had tremendous hope at that point that, hey, she's in, man, it, it looks like she can begin to do this now. And she's moving her little toe and, you know, this is happening. And, and we were very excited. And, and that's why we had this great hope initially that all of this was going to return, that it was, she was going to be normal again in the term, if you can understand that term, normal. After about six months, I saw her eyes follow somebody going across a window and her eyesight came back in fully. I mean, she, yeah, she did. She, she had some amazing progress that were just like little miracles along the way that kept our hope up. Caring for Heather at home isn't easy. As Heather grew, the difficulty of caring for her physically increased. They moved three times to create better accommodations. And with each move, they had to battle with a new school to create an appropriate educational program for Heather. Um, after she got into the, the preschool, I, I heard them use the, the term SMH, and that Heather's diagnosis was SMH. And I said, what does that stand for? And they said, severe multiple handicaps. And I, that was the first time that someone had actually said, that's what your kid is. And I, it really hit me hard. I, yeah, because I didn't think of her that way. I thought, wow, look where she's come from. She's done amazing. That, so that label, that really kind of sent me back. I thought, wow, that's how other people think of her. And when it's your own child, I don't think you always see the deficits that other people are going to see. Describe Heather now. How old is she? She's 34. She's 34. Yes. She's not blind. She's not blind. So or what did she end up with, with her abilities? Well, what we found is that Heather has a very fun personality. She loves teasing. She loves humor. She loves people. She's very much a people person. She does speak. It's a little hard for people to understand if they don't know her well, but she is very able to tell us about her needs, which is another miracle, and we're very grateful for that. She cannot walk. She will probably never walk. She kind of lost interest. We kind of had her working on walking, and it was very difficult. And she finally just said, I don't want to do this. I, I'm fine in a wheelchair. So she does use a wheelchair, but she can roll around, and she can get herself around on the floor remarkably well. <laughs> She'll pull herself up into chairs, you know, if, if she wants to sit with people. And she, she's very determined. She, you could tell that as difficult as this was for her, she was not going to let it impact her having a good life. So you have to do a lot of personal care. Absolutely. With, with Heather, and she's been at home now for 34 years. Relative to the care of Heather, what's the hardest part? The constancy of it, you know, it's it is 24 hours. She is fortunately a very good sleeper, so most of the time we don't have to deal with night issues. But there are times when we do, and we do have caregivers that help us. But it's always in the back of your mind. It, it's just a constant, a constant. I don't, I don't want to say it's a burden. It's just a constant awareness. Awareness, yeah, in your in your mind that. There's a, you know, every time I get a, a text message, I have to check it, make sure it's not some issue with Heather. 
Deborah told me that because Heather was home, she was unable to be employed. Because as she put it, she is unreliable. Deborah is perpetually on call. Previously, because of unexpected issues at school, and currently, when home care attendants can't come as scheduled. I spend a lot of my day dealing with her medical issues or her therapy issues or her staff issues or it, it, it does take up the bulk of my time. We are very fortunate that Kent can work and support us so that I don't have to. So yeah, it, it's, it's the constancy I think that's the hardest for me and, and the physicalness now. As I get older, it's much more difficult for me to physically take care of her. But what I want to add to that is from what we initially thought was going to be her quality of life, it is absolutely night and day. As Deborah said, she, she can kid around with you and she loves to do it. And when people come in, she wants to meet them and wants to show them her room and t talk to them about her. She loves animals. So all these things she can do are, are miracles. They really are. They're, they're tremendously positive and, and it brings great joy to our family. The things that our other three children have learned from Heather are dramatic. I'm really proud of these three kids because they have always kind of sought out the person that might be alone or that's a little bit different or that might not be fitting in in some way with the group. And they physically or, or figuratively put their arms around them and pull them in because they've seen how Heather is different, but how if you don't look at that difference in the normal way, you get benefits. And so they do that and they get benefits from these other individuals that they assist. So Heather's had, I think, more of an impact on our family in teaching us how to be, you know, quality human beings, not that we are there yet by any stretch, but much better is more than I think any other member of the family. You know, you actually anticipated my, my next question, which was about the joys and the impact on the family. Anything you want to add? Yeah, the, it's very, it's a very rich experience to have a child with a disability in your family. They make you think in a very different way, a very different perspective on what is important, how important family is, and how important just loving is, that she's full of love and teaches us how to love better. She's also full of patience, and that's probably my worst attribute. <laughs> And, and she teaches me a lot about it. I can watch her often and see how she has to be patient for things that she has to wait for or people that she has to wait for or, or just getting herself somewhere, how much patience that takes for her to do any task. And it's taught me a lot about what, what patience is and how poor I am at, <laughs> at showing it. <laughs> that essentially your daughter would be a vegetable you were strongly encouraged to put her in an institution and to walk away. You did not do that, but opted to take her home to go through, to see that you had some rewards along the way as she progressed, but you also had a lot of responsibilities for, for care of this child. No one would have blamed you if you would have institutionalized her, and they probably would have thought that was a smart thing to do, but you didn't do that. You've had now 34 years of hard times and joys. Was it worth it? No question. It was definitely worth it. Deborah, was it worth it? Absolutely, yes. She's made our life so much more than it would have been had we not done this. And I can't imagine the vacuum that we would have had if she was not in our family. Thank you. Thank you both. You might be wondering about the man who assisted in the rescue. Deborah and Kent only know about him because the next day he came back and put a grate over the culvert to protect other children in the future. 
he was seen by a neighbor who asked his name. And his 10-year-old son? He was publicly recognized for his bravery, is now 42 with a family of his own. Deborah and Kent still exchange Christmas cards with the family each year.